Welcome to the latest edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round, and I'd like you to give this week's interviewee a big hand, but please don't throw it at him. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I suspect many an illustrious Doctor Who thesp has passed through the building we're in at the moment. So I'd like you to give a big hand, but don't throw any, please, at my <laughs> latest interviewee, one of the great characters of Doctor Who. I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, everybody. I'm Greg DePolney, and in 1976, I did four episodes of Tom Baker's Doctor Who, as the ro in the Robots of Death, and I played the immortal, well, he wasn't actually immortal, he died at the end, D84. He's quite a character. I remember reading the book, and the character sort of is there as just one of the many characters, and I remember when I saw the four episodes, you bring so much to that part. How, what, how, did, you, how did you manage to anthropomorphise <laughs> a robot and make him so... He is a great character. Yes, I, the whole story is sort of... You know, it's a lovely story, really. I'd just come back from the Edinburgh Festival, and <clears throat> I was immediately cast in Space 1999. And an old friend of mine, who's a director, Michael E. Bryant, said to me, hey, "Look, I've got this part. You—it's a robot. I'll put you in a mask. You've got some nice lines to say, and because you're hidden, we could use you again as another part." So, hastened to say, the other part never turned <laughs> up. And we went to do it, and there, you know, it was sort of four weeks. There were a lot of mates there, a lot of nice people I'd worked with before, and, and I had to handle Mr. Baker in an interesting way. He, he loved doing crosswords. And on the first day there, I got about five right in the Times crossword, and he was so impressed. He, we became friends for about a week or two, and then bit by bit, I stopped being able to answer them, so the, 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 it, I wasn't quite so in favour. <laughs> but anyway, um, so this voice, it, it's, it was strange because I had to wear these awful costumes, you know, you could see it on the front of the DVD cover, and it was made of that stuff that you, you know, when you've got a hole in a car, you pack it up with this plasticky stuff. Terrible smell. I can't remember what it's called now. And when we found that we had to speak, of course, nobody could hear us because it was this really quite heavyweight mask. So we did it, recorded it. I just said the line, <laughs> it's not picked up. And then we went into the dubbing studio. And uh, I think between Michael and I, he said, what we've got to do is find a voice that is completely not human, so your rhythms have, can't be human. They can't have an emotion behind them, because at the end of the day, though you are a very bright robot, you have to hide as a, because you're a detective robot. So they give you the, the letter D for dumb, but in fact you're of the highest echelon of intelligence. But because you're having to be there and find out what's going on, you have to pretend to be dumb. So the voice came out, and we just played with it, and, and suddenly we, we were doing it. And all I can remember of it <coughs> was 
blowing myself up, and my final, blowing myself up to say the doctor, and saying, goodbye, my friend. <clears throat> and then many, many years later, I was at one of these signing things. I think sunny people remember this robot, and I was asked to come and sign. I never did the big Doctor Who conventions. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. And somebody said to me, when I signed their autograph book, they said, will you write, please don't throw hands at me? <laughs> and I said, why? <laughs> and they said, that's what you say. I said, what? Yes, you say, please don't throw hands at me. I said, did I really say it? And then they started quoting all my lines. And I couldn't remember any of them. Remember, we did this in 1976. And this was before video. So my, my, little, my daughter was so young at the time, she was terrified of it, so I never saw it. I didn't see it till about 26, I suppose about 20 years later. A student at RADA I was teaching came up to me and said, oh, you, were you D84 and Doctor? I said, yes. He said, oh, I loved it, I loved it. And I said, no, I've never seen it. He said, well, I'll bring you the videos in. And I saw it, as I say, 20 years after we made it. And of course we didn't have video then, it was before DVD, before videos even. So it sort of passed out of one's reckoning as one was doing other work and so on. And then years later, it, He's become a cult figure. It doesn't just happen to you. I worked on a film about 20 years ago, and a mate of mine, who actually, Mark Patterson, he went on to be taught by you, many, one of many students that you've taught, probably 15 yes, years ago. Yes. I watched Robots of Death with him when I was at university. We worked on a film together. He threw me a glove. I said, please do not throw hands at me. And the grip went, D84, Robots of Death. Good heavens, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's brilliant. Gosh. Everyone loves D84. And then there was something about... I, I can't remember something like I could kill you within the uh, the sound of an act of a thousand crystals. Or oh something. yes, you can, it can pick us uh, the crystals from a snowflake one by one. It's the Laserson probe. Yes, yes. It's quite, it gets quite poetic. Yes, I don't. I didn't remember any of it. <laughs> now you alluded to, to Tom Baker, who of course I think goes through various phases when he's Doctor Who of being very grateful for getting the job yes. plucked from a building site yes, to being, exactly. I'm an alien and I know how to play this and all directors are stupid. Yes. So you, you, I think you must maybe had him on the cusp of the, the changeover. Maybe. I think, um, you know, well, this tales out of school, but I think there was a little bit of issues he was having with that lovely actress who played Leah. Oh, Louise James. Yes, and, yeah. um, you know, she once said to me, he doesn't talk to me because all our scenes were together, many of our scenes were together, the three of us, and it was sort of a bit awkward. Um, but I suppose I have to say, you know, when I talk to people of my generation, or you know, a bit younger than me, but remember watching it, they nearly always say Tom Baker was their favourite. Yeah, and he since ag admitted he was horrid to Louise and apologised to her. Oh, how and nice. And now they're the best of friends. Oh, how nice. So it's all OK. Oh, that's so nice, yeah. yes. Because she was lovely. I thought she was lovely. But, you know, it's interesting because he really was a sort of... To me, he was what Doctor Who... He was in the tradition of the others before him. And in, sort of, in a way, it's quite interesting because 
the, the new actors doing it now, they're sort of in a different, well, there's a different time capsule. So um, it's, it's quite nice. But th then I think Tom, I think Tom created the mould, and I think he was a hard act to follow. And um, you mentioned some of the other, you, you, you knew some of the other actors in it. It's like a roll call of very good television character actors. You've got David Collins, you've yes, got Russell Hunter playing totally against type. Yes. Uh, Brian yeah. Croucher. Yes, and Brian and I would, <coughs> excuse me, but Brian and I were drama school together. Pamela Salem and I, we did our first rep jobs together. And there were one to others like David Bailey and. Oh, uh, yes, David, yes, David, yes. Yes, that's right. And, uh, and the costumes are, I mean, you didn't like your costumes, but the design of it, it's a. It's oh, they were fantastic. But as everybody said, they were pretty grim to wear because you had those strange boots and you had to walk on them, so you couldn't, you know, you, you had to, there was a slightly plodding movement. I think what was the problem with the costume was the smell, and you were, in, you were stuck inside them for hours at a time. And so what had got you there? What, what, what had made you taken you on the path to, to being an actor? Well, what, what I suppose. Um, uh, I found at school I made people laugh on stage, and, but never thought I'd take it seriously. And uh, I went to a, a, a funny little school where drama was very important. So being on the rugby first 15 and being in the drama society were equally important, whereas not most schools it's sort of the other way around. And uh, we had a bit of a tradition of putting on plays. We used to put Greek plays on in Greek. So it was quite sort of erudite. And in a way, that was it. But I resisted going into the theatre and went out and got myself a proper job for three years. But the call to try it, even if I wasn't ever going to be successful at it, but the call to try it made me go for it, yeah. And a lot of your early work was in Australia. Why, 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 why? Yes, what happens, I, I, I met my, uh, my wife-to-be shortly after, well, after I left Johnson, been out in the business, I met her. And I just thought, oh, it'd be nice to have a change. I'd fallen in love with her. She was a lovely-looking woman, lovely woman. And so she, had to get, she was going out to Australia to meet her father the first time. And I thought, well, why don't I try it? You know, and that's what end, I'd end up in Australia for five years. Probably acting-wise, the biggest mistake of my life, but, you know, that's how it is. Did you, did you have to sort of start again then when you came back to the Very UK? Very much so, even though I did a lot of work out there, and I suppose in one way I found my feet, because when I went out there, I was able to do all the jobs that probably, at the time, back in England, would have been more of a sort of different sort of pro progression. <coughs> You know, it was sort of like you did your rep, and bit I bit you did a telly, then you did this, and you found your way. Whereas out there, because they, they were much le less actors, you found, you said, one day you were doing a radio, then doing a television, a commercial, then a play. And, you know, I learned a lot out there. I'm not saying it was the best theatre, I'm not saying I gave always the best performances, but I got, I learned a lot. And when I came back to England, strangely enough, um, it, a little bit daunting to start with, but very soon I got back into it and ended up in Dixon of Doc Green for three years. Yeah, regular parts yeah. on television. Yeah. So tell me about working for the BBC and Dixon of Doc Green. Well, it was just an extraordinary bit of luck. Um, I didn't know anybody, but I, I pestered this casting director 
And one of the, you know, these extraordinary little sort of by chance stories, I went to see him. He said, oh, I'll let you see me. So anyway, I turned up and I had my album, which you used to have in those days, before any of this, you know, the internet or anything. And he was saying to me, yes, yes. And he was saying, I, he said, well, have you got some photographs to him? And I said, yes. And there would have been a play that I had won a Best Actor Award out there, which was David's stories in celebration. And I'd had a lot of photographs of that. And believe it or not, the man who played my father in it, who was a wonderful actor, called Terry Norris, who had been a, a British actor, oh, he was Australian, but he'd been an actor over here for a while. This guy said to me, I was his best man. I can't believe it's Terry Norris. I was his best man. And immediately the doors flooded open. <laughs> you know, that was it. And the next thing he said, he said to me, what would you, would you like? I need an agent because, you know, I can't get going without an agent, it seems. And I went and saw this agent. He took me on. He said, there's a park going in Dixon of Doc Green. They need, they're looking for a new detective. They want a little bit of sort of, a bit more oomph into it. And I went up to the part and I got it. And I was there for 30 episodes. I worked with the legendary Jack Warner. Legend, the wonderful Jack Warner, the, the sweetest, kind man, lovely man. He was, you know, quite ill towards the end, of course, but a brave man. And it was like working with a legend, and there was dear Peter Byrne as well. And the actors I worked with, I mean, it was amazing. It was like a roll call of uh, in the British movie industry, from Anthony Steele down, mm. Richard Green. It was just amazing. Yeah, the BBC at that time must have been quite a heady place. It was. Well, we had this thing called the Acton Hilton, the rehearsal rooms mm. in Acton. And each floor, there were three rehearsals, spaces, big spaces. And you'd go up in the canteen on the seventh floor, and you never knew who you were going to see. And at the Christmas time, I can remember, forgive me for saying this, I think I was in the gents in between uh, Ernie Wise and Frankie Howard, because they were all doing their Christmas specials. I said, I don't believe this is happening. It was like that. It was the roll call of the British, uh, British television, British industry. There's been great actors there. All the great actors were. I saw Laurence Olivier up there. Fantastic. Fantastic. I don't know what it's like now, whether they have that anymore. But not really, because not much is made. Not, you know, it's not made in the same way. No, it's the... not. No, because it was all record, rehearsed records. So we'd have ten days rehearsing, then we'd go to the studio for two days. We were all absolutely on top of our lines. And it was really more for the cameras to find us. Now, this is a question I, I often ask, but I think you'll have an especial insight into it. And we'll come on to why later in terms of the fact that you, you teach and you've taught mm. for a number of years. But... Um, often I talk to actors who were in Doctor Who and worked in television in those days, when you did rehearse for yes. days. They say, oh, it's much better because you got to rehearse, you're part of a company. Now, as an actor, I understand why that's much better for you as an actor. Yes. But is it any different for the viewer? Do they... Do they is know, it the, any different for, for the viewer? Does the viewer lose out on anything that now actors aren't part of a company if they work on a television programme, you turn up... You know, you can be on a cast list with people you never meet. Yes, you have a, yes I mean, I've done that as well, you know, more, more recently, well, in the last 20 years, when I stopped being an actor, went into this world, teaching and training, and then occasionally I was sort of wheeled out of retirement. Yes, it was back to a sort of almost like record rehearse. Um, I suppose it was just a different way of doing it. Everything was filmed. Everything is filmed today, whereas in those days it was studio. Was how it was. 
But having revisited your Dixons and seen your Doctor Whos, do you think the acting is different? I suppose we would probably all admit that the sound and everything was a little bit wooden, hollow. I don't mean the acting necessarily. I think because there were more constraints. So we had to do it all. Oh, excuse me. <coughs> we had to do it all in one go, whereas now you can chop and change and change things round, try it this way, try it there, let's have a two shot there, close up here, let's, you know. It wasn't quite so like that, and of course you have the real sound of the rooms you're working in. Um, I think there's much more detail now, and probably, if I'm honest with you, um, the cutting and the editing is much better today. I mean, I can remember one Dixon I did. I mean, I saw it only recently. I can't believe it. But, you know, you see me walking up the steps. I tried to open this door, the handle. So there's a close-up on my hand, then trying to open the handle. And then I walk back down the steps and say to the young woman there, it's all in the script, it's locked. <laughs> well, you wouldn't need to do that now, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I, he, I couldn't say it's locked because I knew he would hear it. But now it would be just a cut away. You can't, you can't hear it. There's no need for me to walk down the steps. We go on to the next scene or whatever it was to try and get in. Yeah. So it, 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 it was sort of slightly, at times you felt you were, I don't know, explaining what you were doing rather than it happening. Revealing it, revealing it, yes. Sure. Sure, yeah, because it's more continuous, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. I mean, acting is really always about revealing. But sometimes, because of the technicals, you have to do more of the explaining. This is what I need to do in order to say this line, because the camera has to do that. Whereas nowadays, you cut and half the stuff is going... I mean, the amount of times you've got you know, the film getting into a car, getting out of a car, being in the car. Now you just cut, cut, cut. And, of course, the pace is quicker the energy is quicker, the audience is more captivated. Um, I think that's the, probably the big difference. And you worked with a number of directors who uh, listeners of this will be familiar with, so I'll, I'll throw some names out to see if you're... Mary Ridge directed a lot of... Oh, you, yes, yes, uh, yes. Dixon's, yeah. and she did a Doctor Who as well. Yes, uh, right, and I never worked with her Doctor Who, but I worked on, on Dixon. Yes, she was nice, very nice woman. Yes, she was fun. We once had the most terrible corpsing session where we... Um, Jack was being, he couldn't get the words out, and we just kept falling about, we just kept falling about. And Peter Bernard and myself, I think Nick Donnelly might have been, there was a lot of shoulders, because it was a real mouthful, it was like tongue twist, like a kind of daily in Duke Street, or Duke, I don't know, you never got the names right. And poor Mary, I just remember her, she, would, she, would, she had this sort of trolley, that she would move into scene and she had all her stuff on it, her script and her notes and everything. And she would see her, and she would go like that, and we'd start, Jack would get all the lines wrong. And, and we just couldn't stop laughing, and she used to be holding onto the trolley to stop laughing. And she was a great lady. And Gerald Blake you worked with as well? Oh yes, Jerry Blake. Now, I, don't, I didn't work with him on Doctor Who, but I worked with him on my very first television, which was, I think, The Spanish Farm That's or something. That's right, yeah. Yeah, gosh, my very first television. And I think 
the night before I turned, the afternoon before I turned up on the set, I had an accident in my eye, and I arrived at the studio, and I had to have an eye patch on. And I was really embarrassed. My very first telly, only a small scene, and he came up to me, not knowing who the heck I was, because I'd been cast months before, and I told him the, the, who I was and the character, and I said, look, I have to be honest with you, I've got this, had this injury done to my eye, I've got the, this eye patch. And he said, this is brilliant, first world war, perfect. You're injured in. He said, I just have to change slightly where I want the camera to hit because I've got to hit the eye that works. But he says, fine. Good, good job the setting was what it was, yes, really. Yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> And um, and so and Michael, we've, I mean, we mentioned that he cast you, but Mike, yes. Michael Bryant, who's who's also done an interview for this oh, series good, from, yeah. via Skype from Spain, bless him. Oh, is he living out yeah, there? Yeah, oh, yeah. Lovely. Uh, so and he and you worked with him on Doctor Who and Howard's Way and various. Yes, things. and uh, I think we did an Angels together. Yeah. We were actually quite good friends. I mean, yes, they would come to us, we would go to them. I think his kids were a bit older than mine. But we sort of lived in the same area, in the St. Margaret's Twickenham Mafia, as we used to call it. So, yes. Uh, and then when I moved out of the area, um, and I did Howard's Way, and after that I slowly gave up acting, so we lost touch. Yeah, you, um, you managed to do a, a, a last hurrah, or nearly last hurrah, working with, uh, well, on the same programme as two Doctor Who's, but Tom Baker and Peter Capaldi on... Um, Selling Hitler, which has got a... Oh, yes. Which they're both in. And yes, of course. Yes, indeed. I never saw them on this. We no, never of had course, any scenes. Was... Now, that was interesting, because that was all filming, and that was such a different experience. There was no studio, no... I mean, we rehearsed and then filmed straight away. Yes, heck, that... heck of a cast, that. Great. What a great. cast. And I was always amazed. It, it wasn't a huge success. I mean, was it Barry Ri No, Barry Humphrey Barry playing Humphrey. Murdoch? Yeah. Alan Bennett playing Hugh Trevor Roper, Alexis Sale. Jonathan I mean, Price. Yeah. I used to think, God, look at this. Jonathan Price and the, and the girl in it had just been in one of the Indiana Jones. Yeah, Alison Doody, wasn't What's it? What's her yeah. name? Alison Doody. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Who'd just been in the Indiana <coughs> Jones film, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just an amazing cast. And lovely Roger Lloyd Pat was in it. And Trevor Baxter, who's oh. very fondly known to Doctor Who fans. Oh, yes, Trevor Baxter, yes, I, I love you, yes, that's great. I know. I just don't know why it didn't make it. I don't think we ever got a repeat from it. No, no. I don't think it even it. sold abroad, did it? No, it was, it was quite largely hyped, and yeah, as you say, it yeah. sort of was on and then... I think we were competing very much at the time with Robert Lindsay and Michael Palin in GTH which was brilliant. Mm. I remember thinking, God, that's the one. Yeah. And so, you, as you say, you drifted out, but uh, not, of, not of influence in the profession. You've, you've been... So when did you first have an inkling that, that teaching and imparting your knowledge? Well, I wrote this show um, it was, uh, called You Can't Shut Out the Human Voice. And I wrote it first for Amnesty International. They asked me to put a show together for them with Peggy Ashcroft. And then I took the show to Index on Censorship, and they liked it, and Peggy wanted, wanted to be doing it with them. So we created this um, sort of two-man show, then other people came and joined, and we did it at the RSC, we did it for the BBC. And uh, then what happened? Oh, yes, um, 
when I did it for the BBC, there was a, a very good a radio director at the BBC who's still a mate, Martin Jenkins, and he said, we, could, we should take this to America. I know some university people, because I go there occasionally do workshops. We should try and take this to America. So, bit by bit, and I once did, I had done the show once, no, twice with Billy Whitelaw when Peggy couldn't do it. And that was another wonderful, wonderful human actress. So sad, she's died recently, like daughter. And Billy and I did the show, and then we took it to America. And part of us getting the funding for the universities was I had to teach in the morning. I had to do acting workshops, voice workshops, improvisation workshops. I'd done a little bit, but not much more. And as I was doing them, I thought, I really like this. I actually prefer doing this. And then I came back and did a bit of directing at some drama schools, not the main big league. Um, went back to America to do some more teaching training, uh, doing another, the one-man show, well, it was two or three-man shows, and then one day I was asked to go back and play uh, Malvodio at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, and I had a branch of it at Colorado Springs as opposed to Boulder, and while I was there, I had a bad accident. I fell from, well, this height, I don't know what that is, about six or seven metres high, I fell on the stage and I broke my body up. And there was no, because what happened, the, the ladder, I was meant to climb up the ladder to get onto a ledge for the incarceration scene of Malvolio. And as I was going up the ladder, it slipped, and I went down with the ladder. So quite badly bruised, broke this, broke that, hip problems, back problems, arm, broken arm, wrist. However, I went back on two weeks later because I was determined to, you know, they flown me all the way over. I'm still going to do this part. But I got a bit of compensation when I got back, went to Central School of Speech and Drama, did the postgraduate voice speech course, gave up acting. And as soon as that was finished, I went into it, became a voice teacher. And I went to Drama Centre, RADA, Central, Lambda. And I did it for over 20-odd years, and at the same time started to work in the corporate business. So now I'm a corporate communications trainer. And you must have seen some students, uh, fledgling students, who are now, their names are lights in the sky. I mean, other people that you can hand on heart say, oh yeah, I knew they were going to well, be. <coughs> I, the other day I saw David O'Yellow in Selma. <coughs> and it's a scandal that he has been nominated. He is wonderful. I remember him as a student at Lambda. I taught him all the way through for three years. I knew he was wonderful. Helen McCrory from Drama Centre, Tara Fitzgerald, uh, John Sim, Sean Harris, um, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Rory Kinnear. Um, who was it? Oh, t uh, 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 quite a few from here. Oh, a lot from here. Um, uh, Tom Hiddleston? Yeah, Tom yeah. Hiddleston, yeah. The most recent one. Uh, and Andrea Riseborough. Oh, golly, here goes. Yeah, lots. Fantastic, yeah. And does the performer in you never... Do you, do, can you hand on heart say, you know, from going from being the person that everyone's looked at to being a facilitator, you don't miss the, no. the performance? No, I'm very lucky. The moment I gave up acting... And no longer had to rely on it. 
as my livelihood, but gave it up and did something within the profession, but something completely different. I slept nights, I had regular work, I never worried about my next job. And I started that in 1987. What are we now? 20, it's 28 years later. Uh, the other thing I think that is a, is a... I mean, I've talked to a lot of actors who fell out of the profession and a lot of them weren't happy about it. You know, it can be a very cruel business. Yes, yes, um, indeed. Uh, whereas you see... <laughs> you know, you see the, the young, enthusiastic... Ooh. For the majority of whom, it's, it's probably their dreams aren't going to happen. No, it's so, true. true. Um, do you think it's a harder business, an even harder business now than it was then, or do you think actors always have that you know, lack of security and dashed ambitions? Or do you think the fact that there's less drama being made now and fewer rep theatres and things like that? I think probably the, the bottom line is when I left drama school, whether it was always that good, I don't know, but there was so much more opportunities because we had, I think, about something like 120 reps theatres, they were these number one tour, number two tour, number three tours going on. All right, we only had BBC One and ITV. Didn't we have BBC Two when I first left? I think BBC Two has just started. But there was so much more drama. It was all before reality shows. I mean, Thames Television used to produce some incredible drama. London Weekend, Granada. You look at The Beeb. BBC, it was an enormous amount of drama, but now half of it, or three quarters of it, is probably reality shows. I know you've got Sky. To start with, when I first left, there was a film industry, and then right through the sort of 70s into the 80s, it was pretty grim. But now I believe there's a lot more happening again. <clears throat> so is it harder? I would say, listening to the students, unless they are, you know, the Tom Hiddleston, so to speak, the ones that are going to be plucked out, like the Gemma Artitans and all that, the wonderful actress. Um, I don't think they're the training grounds. And it's where you can cut your teeth and spend time learning your craft. I think they come out of drama school and they're expected to go straight into Leeds here, National Theatre. And sometimes they just don't have the experience to, to support them. And uh, sort of tying it in with Doctor Who, but it's, it's mm. interesting seeing as you mentioned, David, uh, no way um, looking at the cast of Robots of Death, for its time, it's a multi-ethnic cast. You have Tarek Yunus, you have uh, Tanya Rogers, so an, an Asian actor, a black actress, um, which is quite unusual, I would yes. say, for yes. that time. And now, I mean, even now the talk is... You know, David Oyelowo say I had to go to America to get the good parts because they weren't here. So, I mean, do you see a drive towards um, actors from different ethnic groups having better representation, or do you still do you see them coming through, or do you still think it's hard for them? I often, to be honest, all the years that I've trained a lot of wonderful black actors, Jupiter Ejiofor, David Oyelowo, Ray Fearon, I remember, mm. and some some here. <clears throat> um, I've always thought in one way they might have had more of an advantage in a strange sort of way because there are so many so, so you know, fewer of them um, and also now with you know what we call colourblind casting uh, you don't notice it I mean look, 
gosh, my brain. Um, I always forget the name. He's a wonderful Adrian. Adrian. Adrian Lester. Yeah, Adrian Lester. Um, I saw his Henry V, the, uh, the National. I've always seen him. I can. I don't notice what colour he is. You know, David O'Yellow was particularly playing Martin Luther King. You know. Um, it, 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 Idris, Idris Elba, particularly playing Nelson Mandela, that's very different. But I think, I, I think now, especially in England, I do think we are infinitely healthier in casting, cross-casting. So it doesn't mean all black actors will have to play a fellow. They're able to play anything now, and which is great, which is as it should be. And uh, I've just remembered a couple of directors that you worked with um, who will be of interest to the listeners. Missing from Home, which I remember as, as oh, a kid, yes. Douglas Canfield oh, directed. lovely, lovely man. So sad that he died so suddenly. He was lovely. Wonderful, wonderful, lovely human being. Such fun, so sweet. And George Spenton Foster you worked with in, in Australia. Good heavens, yes. Wow, that's memory laid. Yeah. Yes, I used to go to his parties here when we got back. Yes, good heavens, do I? You certainly done your research. Well, <coughs> if you give me your time, I will give you mine. Oh, you know. Yeah, wow. Um, well, uh, the, the only two questions that remain, apart from saying thank you, and, um, and uh, yeah, D84 is well remembered with very good reason, is at first... What is because you've given your time and nobody involved in this gets paid. So, what is what uh, are your charities that you'd like the listeners to donate to? Well, there's two I'd like you to do, please. One is I think is it called the Smile Train? It's the ones where just a little operation on little children, especially children, African children, where you know they got the deformity, just a little operation, and they will have a healthy, happy life. Whereas at the moment they spend their lives hiding themselves because they don't want to be seen. And the other one is I, ha I do have a personal interest in it because my daughter has, is a doctor with them and my son-in-law is um, an important communicating strategist with them. And that's Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, Doctors Without Borders. And I do links in my outro to both of those so that right. they can find them in fact, on the my internet. My daughter's just come back from Sierra Leone uh, treating Ebola. My goodness. Yes. As a parent, that must equal pride and terror, surely. Equal pride and terror, but big heart, big heart, big star. And, um, and is, there, is there any medical uh, history in your family? Yes, funny enough, there is, actually. My, uh, on my mother's side, my great-grandfather had been uh, Lord Lister's uh, house surgeon, and the two of them together created or invented antiseptics and then my grandfather went on to find the Liverpool, Royal Liverpool Infirmary. Great oh. grandfather. And my uncle's a doctor. And so, what's the provenance of your surname? What was your sort of Oh, the Depolne is Hungarian. And so, Hungarian. And so, where did you grow up? I, actually, I was born in London. Huh. So, I was, I was brought up in England and France and Spain because my mother died when I was very young, so I was sort of carted around a bit. But no acting. In, in, in I believe I have some Welsh arms, <laughs> or great arms, who had uh, were very, very big at the ice set <laughs> Well, and we've convened here um, as a result of Doctor Who being well. It's now in its fifty-second uh, year, but uh, 
because Doctor Who celebrated its 50 year, 50th year is why I started this uh, silly scheme, uh, which is only working because of the generosity of people like yourself. So I would ask you, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who will be listening to this? Well, thank you for all your support, enthusiasm, uh, writing to me. I'm amazed you remember me. Thank you for reminding me of the, the words. And I think it's, a, I think it's wonderful. I, I think the, it's just a lovely idea, Doctor Who, and um, I think it's going on well. As, as you know, um, I think it's each generation is going to get something from it. And I think it's, I suppose the other thing I love about it is, is we created it here. Yeah. Well, Gregory de Paul, now I don't think, I think if people throw hands at you, it will be only out of gratitude, oh. uh, as I do now. Gregory de Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay for you. Yeah, brilliant. I don't think I said anything. Uh, that was a very echoey hall in Rada, wasn't it? Uh, that's where we uh, did the interview. My thanks to Gregory, uh, who was a very nice fellow, and I do love D84, one of my favourite Doctor Who characters, so I was delighted to speak to him, and I hope you were delighted to hear him, and uh, to the extent that you will donate to his charities, which are Smile Train, which is smiletrain, all one word, .org.uk, smiletrain.org.uk, uh, and Médecins Sans Frontiers, which is msf.org.uk, msf.org.uk. Uh, another Who's Round next time. Till then, thanks for listening, and take care of yourselves. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, the fourth Doctor Adventures, The Trouble with Drax. There, Brighton, 1851. Hopefully the atmosphere will prove a little more cordial on this occasion. We're constantly visiting the same cities on the same planets. What's happening? Master, course is being directed by an outside influence. Hello? Anybody home? Step away from your TARDIS time. Oh no! All right, boys, there he is. Fugitive Drax, you have been positively identified. Drax? Doctor! And Princess Astro have been improving on that stuffy ice maiden you used to hang around with, eh, Doc? I think not. Why not? Because I am that stuffy ice maiden. Well, this is awkward. K9, stun them! I believe it's called a state of grace. Time Lord technology, according to Drax. Drax, you didn't. I did. Even told him how to allow strategic exceptions, didn't I? Drax, why are we here? Altrazar. Altrazar. The legendary city, lost to eternity. A metropolis erased from history so completely that only time sensitives have any suspicion it was ever there. What would you say if I told you that not only do I know where Altrazar is, but I've got a map that can take us there? Wow, that's a bit out of the ordinary. Isn't it? And the shadows. People who once were who'll never be. Ghosts lost in the mists of time. Big finish. We love stories.